Well, here we are in the second year of the More to the Story podcast. Thank you for coming along and being a part of this journey. We're thankful for the way God has opened the doors, have interesting conversations in, in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So there's a lot of great things coming. I'm thankful for this interview that's coming up here with Jessica Legron. We want to make sure you know that there also is a resource that's going to be coming your way in July. It is a six-week study of the book of Jude. It's a course that you can use in small groups, in Sunday school classes, and in your own personal Bible study as well. Also, as a result of us having like kind of our first year through of the podcast, I had several people who sent in video testimonies of what they've thought of the podcast and their appreciation for it. So next couple of weeks, we'll be sharing some of those. So that's coming up right now. If you want to send one in, we'd be glad for you to reach out to us. You can get me at andymillerthethird.com. Thanks so much for your support. God bless you all. Hey, Andy, Sean here from Australia. Just want to thank God that we've been able to connect uh, over the last 12 to 18 months and finding your podcast and, and listening to it has been an absolute joy. Um, people who are having these conversations of pulling apart different things and exploring different things, but having conversations that built upon the foundations that the Bible has actually placed in, in our lives and continues to be uh, the foundation as we move forward in these days. The world's a pretty crazy place at the moment. And so um, resources that can resource the Kingdom of God, Christians, and build them up in their faith, in good theology, in good biblical teaching, and in, in good doctrinal um, teaching is, uh, is very rare, but very important today. And so, mate, keep on going. Keep on fighting the fight. Uh, keep on building people up for the Kingdom of God. We love you over here, and we're, we're cheering you on. Bless you, buddy. See you soon. Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you have come along. There are several things that are happening here that we want to make sure you know about. One, I want to make sure you know that we are offering this free resource. It's five steps to deeper teaching and preaching. And it's a free eight-page PDF document that's available to people if you sign up for my email list. And I've included a 45-minute video teaching that goes along with that. So the idea is like to help people think about how they get into scripture, but then how they think about the end goal of how they proclaim that or how they teach that. So I think you'll find it helpful if you can go to my website, andymillerthethird.com and sign up for my email list. I'll send that to you for free. And I want to thank our sponsors for making this podcast happen. WPO Development. They are a group that help people with feasibility studies and capital campaigns, ministry groups all over the country. I've worked with them in the past. They're incredibly helpful. So you can check them out at WPO Development. And you can just Google them. You can find links in the show notes here. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I work and I serve as the Vice President for Academic Affairs. We are in our summer session getting ready for the fall, where we are training and developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. We have a variety of options. We actually have a bachelor's degree in pastoral ministry. We have a um, lay initiative. The Wesley Institute is a nine-month program to learn about every book of the Bible. Then we also have... Um, our Master's of Arts, Master of Divinity, Doctorate of Ministry degrees. So we would love for you to think about Wesley Biblical Seminary if you want to go deeper in your faith. So go to wbs.edu. All right. This is a great day because I have wanted to have this guest on for a long time. Jessica Legrone, welcome to the More Story podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's really, really great to finally be here with you. So Jessica serves as, in case you don't know her, uh, oh, actually, I don't know if I know your formal job, but I'm going to say chaplain 
but maybe it's director of spiritual life and all kinds of things at uh, Asbury. Why don't you tell us your official title, Jessica? Sure. You know, academic institutions love, you know, the formality. So I'm dean of the chapel at Asbury Seminary. I've been here for eight years. Okay. And those of you who don't know of Jessica, I'm really glad to introduce her to you. She's written several books. She's an outstanding preacher. And Jessica, we, I don't know you if I've, you and I've ever talked about this. We missed each other in seminary, but it seems like we were both deeply influenced by Ellsworth Callis. And I've heard, I heard you speak at his memorial service and um, I've listened to you preach many times and so thankful for your preaching. And I do, I do hear I I don't know if people would say that we're similar, but I hear that similar kind of callous influence in your life. So, so tell me a little bit about your relationship with Dr. Callis. Yeah, that that's such a sweet point in my life and my um, training here at Asbury. I, um, I, I sort of stepped out and (laughs) sent him an email early in my seminary career and asked him if I could get into one of his classes before I really had the credits to qualify. And I I closed that email with this just really bold, you know, you can tell you're in your twenties when you send emails like this. I said, um, I think you'd really like having me in class (laughs) instead of, I think I'd really like having your class, you know, and he told me later, he said, I was so intrigued by that. I had to find out if it was true. So (laughs) I ended up, you know, in an intro class with him, really discovering my love for preaching. And then I ended up taking multiple um, directed studies with him and then working for him. And just what that involved was like sitting in his office and hearing his wisdom. So um, I really had several years. And then when I returned to Asbury as Dean of Chapel, he was still living and really his mentoring is part of the reason I ended up back here. Okay. Yeah. He was a powerful figure and everybody who knew him felt like he personally cared for them. He just had that kind of ability to, to care personally for everyone around him. Oh man. It was probably the, the best class, most transformative class I ever took. And then I took, I did like you, I did a few independent studies with Mm -hmm. him as well and it was just so that he was one of the first people to encourage me to write to he Mm -hmm. encouraged me to think differently about my vocation i remember like a you know there was a couple of good strong critiques that he gave me that i i hold to this day but also like the um you know there's this clear moment like after your first message in front of somebody like that's that that's like a different relationship you enter into and i can remember the the compliments he gave me in those moments and um I'm just incredibly thankful for the way that even, even that he engaged me, even though we didn't have, we had no interaction until I got to him. We didn't have a relationship before I got into his class and they, I've kept every letter, every email that he, he wrote to me. And I go right. back to him when I need some encouragement right. along the way. Right. And then you think, how can I be a person like that for other? Oh, people? I know it. How can I make my words mean so much for others? Cause he, he had such a gift of that. So I, I love I love hearing that influence and in yeah I feel like that's kind of like made me more attuned to some of the mm-hmm. things that you're producing even your writing too and so you had a couple of books that came out through Abington and now you have a book that we're going to talk about today but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself why don't you just tell us a little bit about your experience so we we know you went to Asbury Seminary and now you're in the the dean of chapel but what happened in in between that what what'd you sure. what'd you do then. Sure. So I'm ordained in the United Methodist Church, and that's why I came to Asbury. I, I felt called to into pastoral ministry and came here to be a pastor, left here to be a pastor. And uh, pa- I pastored in churches in the Houston, Texas area for 13 years, okay. um, some medium-sized churches. And then uh, the last pastor I was in was uh, um, one of the largest United Methodist churches, the Woodlands Methodist Church, just oh, north yeah. of Houston. 
Um, so really had a wonderful time. I love, I love pastoral ministry. I love blessing people and walking with them through their lives. Really thought that that's what I would do till I retired. And um, Asbury called when I was 13 years into pastoral ministry and said, you know, would you like to come back as Dean of Chapel? Um, I had only known there had only been men in this role up to that point. And uh, th I think that was sort of an exciting time for Asbury to, to look for their, you know, at their first female Dean of Chapel. I have enjoyed being back so much. In, in a way, it is exactly what pastoral ministry is. It is mm. worship planning, pastoral care. Uh, walking with people in their discipleship. It's just that I have what I say is the best congregation on the face of the earth, right? So, <laughs> you know, seminary students, those yeah. those who are entering different ministries, you know this so well, are so life-giving to work with because they're just excited and they're hungry to, to learn and to be formed for ministry and life. I get to work with their families, with faculty. So it's a pastoral role that I'm in. And so I'm thankful for that because that's really how God shaped me in the first place. Right. You know, in, in, in pastoral ministry, like a similar story to you, I served local churches for 15 years before entering oh. into theological education. And I always appreciate the fact that people were voluntarily coming to church, like nobody right. was forcing them. Um, right. At the same time, like there's something unique in the seminary community where people are paying to come. <laughs> essentially, right. Like they, right. they really want to be there. And so I taught a preaching class uh, this past year, two preaching classes, and then even in our chapels and that kind of thing. I mean, not only are they like they're choosing to be there, but they really want what you're, you're having an opportunity and in and, and graduate education too. It's a, it's a little different every now and then maybe an undergraduate. And we see this in some of our programs too, that, well, this is just what you have to do in our society, but I love that. And I always am so thankful for the type of things that the community and the vibrancy of Estes chapel. And so, yeah, yeah you are in a, a special place to be able to lead that that yes. group. <laughs> It's a fun place to minister and and people absolutely the classroom is the center of why people are here and the, the credits they get. But I think the longer people are here, the more they realize, oh, the life outside the classroom is really God is using that to form people too. And, you know, you, you want both the, the life of the mind and the life of the heart head and heart to, to come together and where people are, you, you want people formed for ministry in both ways. So Amen. I love being part of that. Yes. Now, you mentioned being in the United Methodist Church. And before we get into talk about your book, since I know that you've been in kind of some key rooms, kind of like you've been in the room where it's happened a few times. And so, <laughs> it, I'm sorry, I couldn't hold back. It just came to my mind. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like uh, so some of my listeners, like we, we've had Keith Boyette in the podcast, Mark mm -hmm. Tooley, uh, Tim Tennant, and we've talked about some of these uh, Methodist things in the past, United Methodist not concerns or what's going on, but we're, we're recording this on May 18th. So just 18 days ago, the global Methodist church launched. There's been a log. Could you give us an update with what's going on sure. with the global Methodist church and where things are? Yeah. So the global Methodist church really um, planning and formation has been in the works for a while. I think as people have realized you know, we I've, I've been sort of in these rooms for uh, for quite some time. So I can I can remember rooms where we were asking questions about what was going to happen within the United Methodist Church and whether as uh, a group that was trying to lead for uh, reform and revival in the church, whether we were going to be leading or leaving. Right. Mm. Um, and that distinction, that that question has gone on. I for people have been asking that question longer than I've been alive. You know what? What's the best course for leadership here? Are we going to transform this thing 
or do we need to take a step out and form something else? So the Global Methodist Church is the, the fruit of that conversation is people saying, you know, I see a vibrant future for Methodism and there, there's quite a, a movement within the United Methodist Church. A lot of our top leadership has moved away from following our book of discipline and doctrines. And so really this, this new, um, this new form of, of denomination, the Global Methodist Church, is taking our doctrine and discipline and saying, no, we, we love this. Amen. We, we want to stick to this. We aren't leaving the church. The church is, in fact, the denomination has left us behind. In some yes, way. yes. So the GMC, which love, love the acronym, right? Get you a GMC truck and drive it <laughs> on to advertise, um, began May 1st. We do have some clergy, some churches that have already uh, stepped over and are part of the GMC. There's an entire annual conference in Bulgaria that voted unanimously to join us. Wow. So our first annual conference is global. You know, I, I love that it's beginning outside the U.S. And uh, having met some of the leadership there, that's really exciting. So the, the heart is to be, um, you know, one that loves the historic doctrine of Methodism, but form something new, a new container really to bring it and God's reform to the world. Yeah, I love that. And uh, that those distinctions are really helpful. And it's, it's not just a kind of talking point sort of line, like, you're leading, not leaving. Um, I've said with a, even a change in my own life, like I'm not, I didn't, I, I'm no longer a Salvation Army officer, um, but I, I wasn't just uh, running from the Salvation Army, but I was running to what God was calling me to. And I think that that's what's happened um, in the United Methodist Church. Like you have, there's a, there's a beautiful theology tradition uh, that that has been a part of the the witness of Methodism, and I say when we say Methodism, I think it's helpful to think like Methodism, not as just United Methodism. That's right. Of course, That's right. we have it's so much bigger. <laughs> right. I mean, I consider myself a Methodist, even oh. though I've never been a United Methodist or a Primitive mm -hmm. Methodist or a Free mm -hmm. Methodist. So I'm in that tradition, and there's a lot to celebrate there. So what a great moment this is for for you personally, I'm sure, but also just for, for an opportunity to shape something new, kind of dream about the future. I and mean, what are you excited about with the emerging, this emerging denomination? Uh, it's, it has been so fun. So I'm, I'm actually serving on the transitional leadership council, which is uh, the body in place that's guiding this until we can get to a founding conference where, you know, there's a democratic vote across these representatives that form the church. So this is the group that's really figuring out um, there are some things that need to stay the same that have been the same forever but there's also this energy around wow forming something new what are the what are the parts of this that have really worked for us okay let's keep those what are the parts of this that gosh if we could dream up how they could work better and that dreaming is so exciting so I love and and this is true of you know the Wesleyan tradition in general this is this is John and Charles Wesley all over again what do we love about the historic church? Never change it. Love it. Love the yeah, scriptures. Yeah. Love, you know, just double down on Jesus's words and following them, that kind of thing. Now, what are the forms in which we can communicate that in new and exciting ways? So, you know, I, I serve here at the seminary in this place where I'm hearing the wisdom of uh, faculty members who have been longing for this for decades mm. and saying, this is, this is the time. This is the time we've been waiting for and excited about. And then at the same time, students who are new and fresh coming to this saying, 
we're longing for a church where the majority of our work isn't just around conflict. <laughs> and that, that's been true for a while now. You know, a lot of our denominational work has just been trying to unite people whose theology is not united. Uh, so thinking about the ministry, the mission, the movement that we can do as we sort of step out into a new era is really beautiful and exciting. I love it. The, it when I think of, uh, I won't get the scripture verse right, and I could pull up my Bible in first Peter two, just before you get to a line that says like, you know, be holy. Cause I'm holy. There's this um, moment where Peter's saying um, the saints who have gone before our old Testament type of folks long to look what, at what you're looking at. Mm. Uh, I can't think of the, I, I don't have it, but you might know what I'm talking about. People might know yeah. what I'm talking about, but it's like they, they long to be in this position. And now, and in that context, in the original kind of is probably referring to the fact that like, look, they were w- waiting for Jesus to come. Like, so we're not saying, I'm not comparing that. Like Jesus has already come, but think of the generations of people who have, have longed for this moment. So this is our, my encouragement to the, the GMC folks. This is it. You know, we're praying for you as you anticipate what this new denomination is. Okay, one more question on that. What is one of those forms uh, that you're hoping, new new ways to express the church um, that you're, I know it's not decided yet, but that that you think will change? Mm -hmm. I think the way that we relate in mission and, you know, as a a Salvation Army, um, you know, as one of our brothers in that tradition, you'll appreciate this. So, the way that we've done mission has become over the years pretty institutionalized in terms of uh, the funding has come from the top. So churches have just sent their money to the top and counted on them to, to vet missionaries, send missionaries, take care of missionaries. And I've seen how local churches have really lacked a personal contact with now Methodists all over the board in, in every uh, you know, means of this sort of family love mission, love sending, love evangelism. But I've seen churches that have become sort of anemic in their understanding of just how important this is, because it's really just been another dollar sent to the bureaucracy being sent out. And I think the, the way that the Global Methodist Church envisions this has a much more personal aspect for lo- local churches to be involved, um, for them to be directly in contact, directly, you know, supporting, sending, all of that, I think will will really breathe new life back into missions. Amen. Instead of, instead of removing that from the local church um, in a way that, um, you know, conforms it to some bureaucracy, it really brings, you know, you, you know, just the personal love of like hearing missionaries talk about their work and their calling and wanting to say, I get to be part of that. Amen. I think that that will be that global connection will be restored in a way. And I'm so excited about that. When I had Keith Boyette on uh, is huh. interesting. That's actually my number one podcast. I think it got picked up by uh, um, YouTube. It's just like when people, I, it's a simple title, United Methodism, what's going on. And uh, maybe mm. it was my title, I, but, but Keith, in, came in and he, one of the things that was interesting to me, I kind of, I don't know if I quite can't think of another word except for a twinkle in his eye. He got pretty excited at this moment when he said, I just envision us also like global missions, but also going into communities where there hasn't been an evangelical Wesley or Methodist presence. Like uh, I'm, I'm just stereotyping here for Steve, like Portland. Seattle, maybe there are evangelical Methodist churches. Forgive me if I'm not, not anything, don't know that. West, anything west of the Rockies. I mean, just okay. is really a, a, both a desert for evangelical Methodism, but 
churches are being planted there that are thriving. You know, we're, we're in contact, you know, we don't stay in the lane of our own denominations. We hear all kinds of great stories and great churches and pastors. So I'm excited too, because I think people are longing. And I think I, you and I both will be on board with Wesleyanism has something really special for this age in terms of offering people, you know, the grace that begins right where they are, but transforms them and restores the image of God. You know, Wesleyanism has such a gift and a deposit from the ages. And I think people are going to be hungry for that. That's been really blocked in by our bureaucracy in the past in terms of bringing that witness to certain areas of the country. And now it's just, this is a, no longer a desert. It's a farm waiting to be planted. You know? Oh man, what a great line, Jessica. I, maybe, maybe you already wrote that one out, but if not, we need to write that line down. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to remember that. Uh, we can go back and listen. That, it, that's great. And I think that's what we're experiencing um, it, with both of our institutions. Um, at Asbury, obviously, it has years of growth. Um, WBS has septupled in size in the last four years. I don't know if you know that. No, that's wonderful. So, and, and, and it comes with this like fierce commitment mm-hmm. to the tenets of Wesleyanism and like our name, Wesley Biblical Seminary. Now, right. some people would think that we're narrow. Um, it's true. We are narrow. We believe in the authority of scripture and the, uh, the real possibility of transformation and sanctification in this life. So like, yes, like, I'm sorry, that's who we are. But what's that, what's that led to is it's led to growth. It's led to opportunity to serve more people. And I think as we, if we become more bland, or if we try to kind of like make everybody happy on every side, we end up losing distinctives. And so that's been part of our, uh, what's made it successful. So I'm hopeful that as um, wh- whatever expressions this take, like I know people might not even know, like the Association of Independent Methodists, a very a small denomination that's in this region, they have a church planning initiative, and every year they're planning churches, they're growing, yeah. and, and same thing too. I'm, I'm know is going to happen for the GMC. Mm-hmm. We love it, and and you know I I love you and I both have this seat in theological education where we get to look out over multiple denominations really working for the kingdom in concert with each other. It's a beautiful thing. And so not feeling that sense of like, my way is the right way. My, mm. my family's the only family, but I love the Pan Wesleyan family working yes. together and encouraging each other. I really appreciate you saying that, Andy. Yeah. Well, maybe this is connected a bit to your book. I don't want to read too much into it, but the title, and I love the fact that this is a new uh, co- effort that's in concert with Zondervan and Seedbed coming together, partnering. Um, mm-hmm. And this gets some kind of this pan Wesleyan movement a little bit more into the broader evangelical world, which isn't necessarily the goal, but I think there's a voice that you have, and I'm thankful for it, that needs to be heard in those fears. But the title of your book maybe is, is connected to even <laughs> what you're experiencing, Out of Chaos, right. How God Makes new things from the broken pieces of life. So mm-hmm. tell me, what is it that led you to this, this book and this concept talking about uh, chaos? I love it. So, you know, so many people have looked at me and just said, why did you want to write a book about chaos? And the <laughs> answer is, um, I didn't, I didn't want okay. to, I felt like I had to, I felt almost compelled. That's what calling feels like, right? You feel compelled to something that originally did not feel like your own idea. And chaos, um, it just started popping up everywhere. God speaks to me through repetition a lot. I don't know okay. about you, 
where when you see things over and over and see God working or pointing things out to you, you're like, Lord, is that you? What, what is that? Why do I just keep hearing this? So I, you know, probably around 2017, 18 really started just noticing chaos in people's personal stories in um, biblical stories, right? In the places in the Bible that chaos is transformed. And then also um, globally. And that mm. of course escalated. I, I was really putting the bones of this book together and I had, had met with Seedbed and Zondervan folks at, um, you know, I know you and I both love the, the New Room Conference uh, for a couple of years leading up to um, it, 2018, 2019, just conversations. What would this book be like? Here's some of my outlines, but I kid you not, the, the a contract for this book came through in March of 2020. That oh. is, that is when the book became an official thing in the world. And I thought, yeah, we, we need a book about chaos because the world was suddenly just consumed with chaos. Wow. Um, for me, I, I really entered a lot of conversations with people. Uh, I'm an investigator by nature. I like to research and ask questions. So I would just ask random people, like, tell me about the chaos in your life. Hmm. And that, you know, makes me fun at parties, right? Like that's <laughs> a conversation that most people aren't looking to start. But I will, I will tell you this, like no one ever said to me, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> wow. I mean, to a person, if you ask people, is there chaos in your life? Every person will, without blinking, say absolutely yes. Mm. And I, I never had anyone say, "There's no chaos here." What are you? What do you mean? So we all have just that normal, small drip of chaos, like on a daily basis. The things that are are hard to like. We try to plan our lives, and things get in the way, even of our daily lives. Even the small things, like if you have kids trying to get them out the door in the morning. Oh no, there's one shoe missing. Our, our whole day is thrown off. Um, mm -hmm. But also just relying on um, things, not things to work and things stop working in our lives, whether it's appliances or cars or things about our own bodies or our relationships, chaos gets in the way. So everybody has some, some irritant coming into their daily lives. That's uh, really just working at them in a way that makes life not the way they hoped it would go. Right. And then you've got global chaos, right? So the pandemic definitely putting, I had the, I had the bones of the book together, the outline, the stories, and then COVID and just saying, oh man, the whole world, has there ever been an event where the whole world really encountered all at once uh, the same kind of need to just totally transform, to shut down? And in that, I, I was so shocked by what that looked like for people because we normally think about chaos as too much, right? Chaos is like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. There's too much going on. And I really think the pandemic showed this chaos of um, the lack of things, the lack of, yeah. the lack of events, the lack of boundaries, the lack of uh, the milestones that we count on, the lack of personal contact with people. So it was almost the chaos of absence. Wow. Um, and that to me connected a lot to um, creation. You know, when God creates and, and Genesis 1-2 is really where this book comes from, uh, the earth is dark and formless and um, the, the spirit hovers over the surface of the deep. There's God is creating into nothing, but it's a nothing that is a chaos of nothing, right? It's formless. 
-hmm. that nothingness, God has to speak life and order and light into that. Um, because God, God comes and makes new things out of chaos. So I, in a way that lack, that absence was sort of a longing in us for new creation. I think we, we needed relationships. We needed contact. We needed milestones. And then just watching the world rebuild that has been fascinating. Yes. Interesting. So like normally people would not think of chaos being connected to downtime. Right. One interesting thing you mentioned, like for immediately, my thoughts go to the fact that we are generally in a place where we think if I could just get through this chaos, Mm. right? If I could just get, um, I just need another week, another day. Um, once my kids get out of diapers, once this, once I get the dissertation done, once I have this book project, once I'm, uh, finally get the work done. I mean, what, what's the danger in that? You know, I, I think, uh, for me, COVID dispelled a lot of that because even just the thought of like, you know, if I ever get a week at home, I will clean out the basement. (laughs) Absolutely did not happen. Oh yeah. Um, dispelled all of those untruths about you know, I I think Andy, a lot of it is about us thinking that our external circumstances are where all the chaos is located. Mm. If I could get beyond my external circumstances, then chaos will go away. I could, if I could just shape these circumstances. And so a lot of our prayer lives are around circumstantial settings where we say, Lord, if you would just shape this chaos differently in my circumstances, then, then I might, you know, we, we have sort of an answer to that. The truth is that chaos is in us as much as it is around us. Mm. And there's a sense in which even prayer reveals that to us, because if you, if you can find time to be quiet in prayer, to sit down and silence the chaos around you enough to say, all right, Lord, this is our time what immediately happens is the chaos within you takes over and begins to, you know, the noise inside your brain can be louder than the noise outside, you know? Mm. So it is not all in our circumstances. Our circumstances certainly shape us, but um, you know, I think about you, you and I have a common mentor in Christine Pohl who talks about contentment a lot. That is one of her core messages. And I think that message on contentment is, you know, there is no waiting for external circumstances to change. If you look at Jesus's life and ministry, he is just moving from one chaotic place to another. And yet he brings peace and calm. And, mm. um, you know, what I, one thing I love about Jesus in the chaos is there's so many circumstances around him. So leprosy, right? They believed it was so contagious. You couldn't even touch it. And yet here's Jesus moves straight into the chaos, puts Mm. his hand on it and says, no, my healing is more contagious than this brokenness. Wow. So Jesus is showing if you're waiting for your circumstances to change, you're going to wait forever. Right. But if you can bring God into those circumstances, that transforming power can actually be more contagious than the chaotic brokenness that's there. So the chaos in itself then becomes something that it be like, we acknowledge its existence, but at the same time, there's something 
better, more beautiful yes. that yes. can can take over. Yes. What is that? So is it, it it's kind of not there's probably an acknowledgement of chaos, but then there's the response to it. And I know that that's a section of your book. I don't know if, if I'm getting ahead of you, sure. but like what's a, the, the, the thought like, is that is that what we do is like just come up with res responses that are healthy ways mm -hmm. to deal with it or, or can it ever go away? I mean, is it is it always going to be there? I, th I think it's absolutely being transformed, right? Mm. From glory to glory, right? We, we are being shaped and our circumstances are being shaped. We can absolutely pray for God to stop chaos, to, to heal, you know, physical brokenness, to change relational circumstances. We are absolutely agents of calm and order and peace where we ask God to, we're, we're not saying, Lord, you've given up on this world. It's just going to be chaotic until new creation. I think God puts us here as agents of order and light and mm. fullness, which are the, the three words that he, that creation really brings about out of that chaos, order and light and fullness. Mm. Um, we're agents of that and seeing God at work in that. Now, on the other hand, we, um, you know, we want to see it transformed, but there are also, there are lives that I, I wanted to be sure in this book that I did not imply that there was some formula or prayer or here's three steps and your right. life, you know, we've all read books like that. We've thought, Oh Lord, I wish life worked that way. Right. One of, one of the chapters is really um, dedicated to around the story of a, a good friend who is the mother of a special needs child. Okay. Now their chaos uh, it's and it's lovely um, is this love and life forming chaos into order on a daily basis. And then they wake up the next day and do it again. Mm. Um, and they're going to wake up the next day and do it again for a lifetime. Yeah, um, yeah. Just the sense of how, you know, this child's body is shaped and formed means they have a lot more to work on in the world than most of us do on a daily basis. Um, I don't want people like that to hear that they have been exempted from God's grace or love or transformation. What transformation looks like in those circumstances is often, you know, it's almost like Jesus in the boat in the storm. Yeah, you, you may be in the storm, but he he's in the boat, right? So sometimes the storm gets calmed, but sometimes you're just riding the waves. And I, there there's so many families, so many relationships that um, are going to ride the waves. That yeah. chaos is going to be a reality. Uh, so what does God do with that? He moves in, he comes in with you. He can hold you in that form, you in that shape, you in that. So I, you know, there is both the God is ordering and shaping, especially of our own souls of our, our renewal into his image. Um, and there's also the sense of like, gosh, if you, if you're going to go through it, you know, this is what the incarnation means is Jesus says, I want to be in the boat too. If you're going to go through it, let me in. Amen. I think it's interesting to think about chaos as being connected to the reality of evil or suffering, uh, mm -hmm. theodicy in general, a kind of a technical way we think of that. That it, is that what suffering is? Is it a kind of an expression of chaos? And hearing you say the story of your friend, you know, when we're confronted with these situations where you think, oh, it, it's just not fair. I'm often reminded of the fact that like God steps in in the midst of things that are, are suffering evil, like things are really bad, but yet the, the idea is like, not just that he, he didn't just create that situation, but in the midst of it, he can master it. He can like, right. he can take our, our challenges and shift them in a way 
that fit in with his bigger plan. Do you, right. I mean, did you, did this book force you to think about the existence of evil, the existence yes. of suffering? Yes, very, very much. Cause honestly, when you ask people those questions, where do you see chaos in your life? <laughs> you might get like a, you know, I didn't make it to the grocery store today and I don't know what I'm gonna eat for dinner. And you might get a cancer diagnosis. Wow. You, you might get a, a generational issue that people are, are born into. They don't know how to solve. You, you might get a pandemic. You might get, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> the problem of evil is very real and, and very personal to people. It manifests itself in very personal, personal ways. I think something that's helped me over the years, I don't know if you remember this classic old book um, called The Will of God by Leslie Weatherhead. Do you remember, did you ever read that? I'm sorry, I didn't. It is, it is old, um, but it is so relevant, so helpful. So, you know, Leslie Weatherhead, this um, pastor, uh, I believe was British and talked about like God, there's the way God wants the world to go. There's God's intentional, original will. And we see it in, in Genesis. And then there's, you know, the way that the world breaks down, but God doesn't abandon it. So God has a circumstantial will. He moves into those circumstances and blesses and helps with that. And then God has an ultimate will and he's moving the whole world towards this new creation ultimate. That's been so helpful for me in talking with families and with folks who struggle with, you know, just terrible circumstances that we would all say, Lord, why? Right, right, um, right. Right. Because it, it's very damaging when people imply either just under the surface or outright that God wants suffering, that God wills those actions in people's lives that are so damaging. It really damages people's ability to trust God. And so helping them shape that in like a, you know, what, what, what are God's intentions? And then can God shape, can God work in these circumstances? Is God working for good ultimately? Uh, is the end going to look like uh, Eden? Um, right. Is he moving back towards new creation where creation was the original standard? Uh, some of that, sometimes you're in a moment where you cannot wrestle with all of that because it's just too close. Too right, personal. right, but right. For people who are wrestling long term, I think that's really helpful to think about, you know, what that he doesn't desire for any of his little ones to perish. It says, you know, he doesn't right. he does not will evil for us. Yeah, and I'm sorry if there's a little bit of feedback here from my end, but we'll, we'll just keep going. Um, th it's such a helpful thought. Uh, in, in a pastoral situation, it doesn't ever seem to be the right thing to say to people. Well, don't worry. There's the eschaton is coming. Like it's it's all, but like that's not a great pastoral response in that moment. But like you say, in the long term, this is the like the the direction of where the world is going. Like we could not like even thinking now, like we're dealing with the reality currently as you were recording this. The, the horrors of what's happening in the Ukraine with um, a result of like the conflict that's a war that's been thrust on them and injustice, evil, I mean, to innocent people is coming. Uh, the reality of abortion exists. Nowhere. I keep on thinking like innocent people who are, all these things are, are absolutely horrible. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's not the end. The, right. It's not the end for them. And we rest on the fact that God will ultimately bring judgment and justice and establish the world in a beautiful new reality that is beyond anything that we can imagine now. So like, I do lean in on that. Like that, the, here's a question, Jessica, will the chaos end in the new creation? Mm, I, you know, you got to look at revelation for that, right? Like you're being given a picture. And so 
um, one, one of the images, the metaphors that travels throughout this book and throughout scripture is of the chaotic waters. Mm. So you've got the spirit hovering over them. You've got the dove at the ark emerging from chaotic waters. You've got the dove hovering, descending on Jesus at the waters. This image over and over again of how, how the spirit of God moves. And then you have um, any, any time in that uh, cultural understanding, there were the waves and waters Boy, you had to be careful because that is where chaos resided. That was the home. Just like if you and I, as you know, were told like, where's heaven? You kind of instinctively like look up. Um, This culture would say, where does evil reside? They would look down into the water and say, right. Um, So you get this image of this sea of glass, right? In Revelation. All right. So it is the sea of tranquility. It is the sea of calm. It is. God has transformed this water into a calm place. And Mm. I think that's a way of saying like anything in creation can be restored. Uh, God doesn't remove it, but he transforms it into something really beautiful. The, The other, you know, I talked about wanting to avoid the idea in this book that there were three steps to overcoming chaos. And if you just do these things, right, putting it in the self help section. Um, I think one of the other things I wanted to avoid is this sense that people look at Christians and think, well, is your God so ordered that he sucks all the fun out of life? You know, Mm. are Christians so um, opposed to chaos that there's no spontaneity, no fun, right? We're just buttoned up to the to the top of our collars. And, you know, there, there have been movements in the Christian world like that, where people look at us and think that um, the absence of sin might mean the absence of fun. Mm. Um, and I definitely wanted to sort of come against that and say, what I'm saying is not um, really like put the guardrails on so tight that you can't really enjoy this life. That's yeah. not who God is. So, you know, there's a couple of different ways I think that God moves in chaos in a way that says, here's the appropriate places for spontaneity, love, fun, joy. Um, you know, GK Chesterton has this amazing quote. Where I saw you had this. Oh, I love this quote too. Sorry. I'm sorry to jump in. I know this is where you're going. I, <laughs> I, I got a preview. You sent me a, uh, I didn't get the full book, but I did look at your footnotes. And so then I went, yeah, so this is, I just, I came upon this in February, I preached on Psalm 16 and I was uh, the, the pleasant, uh, I'm, I'm interrupting you, please. No, me. I want to hear. Yeah. Psalm 16, you know, the, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And um, so I'm setting you up for, to, to give this, I, mean, I think it's one from orthodoxy, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I, 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 go ahead. I love right. this quote. Where he says that, you know, the, the reason God has put these things in scripture that guide our lives, that give boundaries to our lives, is he wants to create a place where good things run wild. Amen. And, you know, that's that's the hope. That's the joy. Like God is like, it, it's almost like putting the boundary lines on a soccer field, putting the boundary lines on, um, you know, around a playground saying here, God just says, I want to see you play with joy and and so I made a safe place, right? I, I made a place for you and that there are so many good places where humanity gets to experience the unfettered joy of God. Amen. That, that is what creation is for, for God to look at it and say, it is good. It is good. You know, that just that repetition in Genesis one, it is good means it is functioning well within the ways that God made it to function, not just it's pretty 
but yes, yes. it's it's about you know John Walton is this um, incredible Old Testament author. Yeah. It's, it's about function, mm. and um, so you know one one of my favorite stories in the book centers around a, a nursing home where things got pretty sterile, pretty like people the light had gone out of their eyes. They were just being kept alive, you know. Okay. And a, and a new director moved into this nursing home, a medical director who said we need to shake things up a little bit, and ordered like. Uh, a dog and two cats for each floor, um, uh, like a chicken coop and a rabbit hutch out back, <laughs> an after school program so that children were running through it. And then my favorite is ordered a hundred parakeets uh, to come in cages, right? But when they came, they came all in one truck and their cages weren't there yet. So they actually had to bring in a hundred parakeets that they put in the, in the hair salon of this nursing home. And the <laughs> residents who had been so sedate and kind of without life were like at the window watching and laughing as the staff chased down a hundred parakeets to put them in cages that were assembly required and then put them on the floors. And the transformation in that place is that um, their, their, really their levels of medication needed went down the people who had been almost just catatonic and non-responsive began to pet the animals. Um, children's voices were heard and people who couldn't eat were non-ambulatory. Their heads were turning towards the children, smiling at them, you know, just at every stage, adding chaos into this place, adding good things, running wild, literally in their hallways, wow. improved both the quality of life. And then what they found is people lived longer. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Just I love it because life is for something, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just to be preserved in a sterile way. Um, so I think that message for me, it was more than like, God can make all things whitewashed. And, you know, it's, it's more like, what is God's purpose for this life? Right. Is there, is there boundary chaos that is a glorious, spontaneous, life-giving mess? Yes. Amen. yes. I love it. This is idea of uh, sometimes holiness and happiness have been contrasted. And yes. I think that's problematic. It's a great, honestly, you and I both know as preachers, like it's great to get a good one-liner. And sometimes uh, people might even say amen or a deep, mm, if you say God doesn't want you happy, he wants you holy. Mm, great. But, but really that contrast, I don't think is in line with what happiness is. Now, happy, the word happy itself can seem trite at times. But I, I and I'll, an example of this is my own, in my own experience, my wife bought me uh, Randy Alcorn's uh, a devotional book based upon a bigger book he did on happiness. And it was called like 60 Days of Happiness. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is this? And, and I didn't I didn't I didn't say that out loud to her, but maybe I was thinking, but and, <laughs> you, and, you just uh, <laughs> oh man, there it's gone. Um, but I said this to her too. And it, what I realized in reading that book was, well, you know, I haven't thought deeply about happiness. And a, a call to happiness. And I think this is what you're describing when we have the place where good things run wild. Mm -hmm. And G.K. Chesterton in that moment, I think he was comparing himself to like the agnostics of his time who were finding life to be entirely restrictive in the Christian sense. And he was saying, no, this is this is opportunity where the, the things that God has intended get an opportunity to flourish. And right. I think of this like as I've heard you talk through this this podcast, you're talking about light, order, fullness, and I'm bringing in happiness. Um, it sounds like a, a holiness book to me. <laughs> oh, 
I, th- I think that's why it is kind of distinct. It is distinctively Wesleyan and it, it fits in Seedbed's catalog of what is the Wesleyan voice to the world that if it, if it is missing something very big in God's message will be missing. And that is that the holiness is not sucking all the fun in life out that it is actually, you know, bringing light and life and happiness to people through this image of restoring the image of God coming into the fullness of the image of God. That's what holiness is. You know, it's, it's not something that is contrary to our uh, joy. (laughs) It actually produces joy. So yeah, you're, you're hearing right about uh, the message of the book. Well, I love that. And you know, here, honestly, I have a a Martin Luther bobblehead here. So just know (laughs) that I do love him. I do have John Wesley. He's much bigger behind me, but, um, uh, nevertheless, like the kind of Lutheran emphasis of being a simultaneously a saint and time simultaneously a sinner is mm-hmm. this idea of like come this battle of our being that we're we're always struggling. Maybe we're always sinning. We're always in a place where we're kind of in this chaotic mode. It, right. Is that is there is there danger to that? Mm-hmm. You, I think you and I know there there is. You know, there's there's a couple of ways to handle that. One is to just um, give in and say, once a sinner, always a sinner. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm not really going to avail myself of God's tools for holiness. I'm just going to slide into it because what's the hope, right? If once a sinner, always a sinner, what is the hope? Why don't I just give into it and have a little fun while I'm at it? Yeah, um, yeah. And then, and then the other side of it is that sterile picture that we talked about, but it's also sort of um, an abuse of the self to say, to walk around saying constantly, um, I am a worm <laughs> and Luther, Luther would definitely tell us that in a lot of ways, right. Um, that sort of that era of, uh, boy, we didn't talk much about, um, self-confidence in that era. I think, um, you know, that sense of like, I had either better just tell everyone how terrible I am, or I'd better fake it and clean it all up myself. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and both of those things, that self-acceptance and also, you know, self-reformation, um, self-improvement is what we would call it now. They're so centered on the self, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not life-giving, right? God wants us to look to him for that fulfillment. So absolutely that has been damaging. It's not just in Luther's era. We see it in the church right. today where people are saying things in order to, you know, here, here's what the perfectly cleaned up Christian looks like. Fake it. <laughs> just mm-hmm. pretend, pretend. And, and I think the church has kind of passed that because we've seen it didn't work. It didn't work to say, we've got this all together, but sh- we really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so surrendering instead of offering a self solution, really surrendering to the, the will of God and just saying, you know, sanctification doesn't come from our efforts. Right. It's this is the key effort. thing. Yeah, for us to be able to move the direction of think, and when the when the call to holiness exists, or when we put on your, um, uh, I, I think probably in Essie's Chapel, I know in Hughes Auditorium, uh, every Salvation Army building has, uh, every Salvation Army sanctuary has holiness unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. This isn't a call just to to do better, right? To work okay. harder. This is acknowledging that God is God is the one who sanctifies. Mm-hmm. God is the one who brings chaos out of order. And and I love, oh, like I love the image too. Like you have, it's out of chaos. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is an out. Yes. There's an out for us in this. Yeah. 
it's interesting what happens to books in the process. So the, the original title was created, I mean, yeah, created from chaos. And I kind of liked the um, alliteration there. And I think it was J.D. Wald who said, you know, what we want is out of chaos. We want out of it. Wow. And um, and we're created out of chaos, right? Like we come from it and we want out of it. And so that that title has become very formative. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the the denominational struggles that my world has been bound up in. It definitely applies to that. Who doesn't want out of the chaos of the pandemic? Um, right. you know, there's just there's a lot of desire there. And I would say, too, you know, I, I love that, you know, some of your listeners and viewers are getting this the video uh, aspect of this because there's actually a mosaic in my office that yeah, I, yeah. I put up like eight years ago when I moved into this office. But it's pretty mirrored in the cover of the book, which I don't know how that happened. Oh. I did not. I did not choose, you know, the same like wave imagery um, and wave imagery on the cover of the book. But the the story about this mosaic is it it, it is you know mo- mosaics are little broken pieces glued together to make something beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular mosaic is so heavy; it's on a slab of concrete. And when I moved in and I had the facilities team hang it up, and I left for the weekend. And came back on Monday, and it was on the floor. It had pulled, it had ripped out of the wall with its weight, wow. and fell on the floor. And there were little pieces oh. all over the floor of my office, and half of it blank. Right, and so um, I had to like get help and ask somebody like bring the bring the glue. And we sat here and like tried to find the spots where it went back together. I have thought about that almost every time I walk into this office and look at it because I can see places that are still blank. I couldn't figure out where it all fit. And also, you know, just that imagery, what are we, we were broken. God puts us back together into something beautiful. Sometimes things break again. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. events in our lives where the beauty becomes brokenness again. Mm. And God absolutely says, get the glue, you know, Amen. I'm in it with you. And the picture is more and more transformed over time, but yeah, we're yeah. also, we're also called into that in other people's lives, right? Like we're the people with the glue. We're like, yes. can I sit with you in this? Can I, you know, that we're agents of that kind of beauty that comes from brokenness. Jessica, like uh, when you said that it's so powerful for me, me personally, just some, I, I imagine somebody might be listening right now is like, look, that my, my, um, piece of art just fell off the wall and it's broken yeah. like somebody is like the words you just said hit right to their heart would you just speak mm-hmm. to them right now yeah yeah i mean i i have been there i've been sitting with people who are there 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 are people daily that i sit with that are more broken than seeing the beauty and i i think that god is in it with us mm-hmm know, I love that Jesus didn't say, Hey, you guys messed up. I'm out. <laughs> you figure it out. Yeah, you know, yeah. I love this incarnational God who absolutely says, can I come and be in this with you? Amen. Yeah. Um, so what I would say to folks is absolutely pain is valid. Brokenness is real. Don't, you know, we, we all try different ways of numbing that rushing through it, ignoring it. It never works. It always pops up in other ways sitting in it with somebody who can sit with an arm around or um, a prayer for you, or, you know, just finding that peaceful person who can be in it with you can, can make all the difference. Um, But absolutely knowing God never leaves us alone in that. It is never the last word. 
Amen. Uh, the story again and again affirms that that chaos never has the last word. Amen. And um, so we can't always see it. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to get the picture back together. Um, but I really, really believe that that is what the Lord is about is saying, I'm in it with you. I will not leave you alone. Amen. Oh, I love it. Thank you for taking that minute there. Yeah. Look, I want to encourage people to find this book out of chaos published by Zondervan and Seedbed together by Jessica Lebron, who we're so glad to have on today. Uh, Jessica, imagine uh, uh, maybe this is producing more chaos in your life when I ask this question, but is there another project on the way from you? What are you thinking about now? Oh, oh my god! It's okay. You can say no. <laughs> there isn't, isn't there always like, yes. I don't know how your, how your brain works. You and I could probably talk about this forever, but I've been working through a doctor of ministry and preaching. Okay. And, um, I'm sort of at the tail end of the project, which is on creative preaching. So I love to talk about the creative ways that God communicates with us, but then also I, I really think there's a, a book in it coming, you know, years down the road, probably, but, um, I've been really looking at how the creative communication of God's word is an absolute joy. Mm -hmm. And what are the ways that God gives us not only the content to give to people, but what's the container in which we can deliver that Amen. so that people can hear it, delight in it, remember it, be transformed by it. That, that is really, I listen to 106 sermons a year in Estes chapel, not including Sundays where I go to church. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot of preaching in my life and, and thankfully good preaching, you know, I get to hear really good preaching. So, yeah. um, I'm just thinking about that a lot and how, how that can even for this new generation, a new era continue to just bring light and life to people. Yes. Yeah. I love hearing that. This is interesting. Um, you and I have not had considering the circles we run in and, yeah. uh, we, we haven't had as much time to talk as uh, that through our life. So hopefully that will change. Yes. Um, but I've noticed that you are influenced too by one of my professors uh, from my work at Perkins. Um, and that's Alice McKenzie. Oh yeah. She's so great. She, uh, I, and, and I know you really like her book on um, writing and, oh man, I can't think of the name of uh, it right now. Novel preaching. Novel preaching. Yes. I even have my students read it. So uh, forgive me, Alice, if you ever watch this, but uh, I, that, that emphasis is a part of what I've, what I've uh, taken in and, and she really helped me quite a bit in thinking about, about, uh, about form and structure and that, like the, everything that you're saying there. And I know, like I, I would say <laughs> when you kept, when you said, uh, you said throughout the podcast, like, oh, there's just, um, there's not three ways of things. And, and here I, at the beginning of the podcast talked about how I have, um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting, I, I, I went a little longer here. So then my text message started going. So then, um, uh, I have five ways to deeper teaching and preaching. Like, okay, uh, it's just a way, it's a way to keep people's attention. It's not like definitely going to get there. I know you're not critiquing that. I'm critiquing no, no, myself. No, no I think this, five uh, ways is an appropriate way of teaching. Definitely. Right. Like we, that, that absolutely helps us with points. Uh, there are the, and it's a valid way of preaching. You know, three points has carried us for a long time. There are three good points and a lot of things. It's just not the only way, right? You know, there, there are other forms. So and, and I, that's interesting. We do have so many points of overlap that it's really hilarious that we have not just, you know, live next as next door neighbors for, right. for all of the points of overlap that are in our lives. Yeah. It's, I, I, Alice's stuff is so interesting because trying to think about the, uh, like how we consider our audience, 
even from the exegetical phase. Mm-hmm. That's that's a helpful. Now, now where where we might disagree, not or some people might disagree with me, was that doesn't change the meaning of the text. Like the the the, the challenge can be is like, oh, we could think like as we're thinking of the congregation and our audience in the current situation, that that changes the original meaning or might change the meaning. No, well, no, we just keep them in mind how we refresh it. So I'm I'm hopeful that you'll be able to come up with some. Uh, more material based on your own experience and now your academic work too. That's that's exciting to me. You're going to be talking and thinking about preaching. Yeah, it's it, it actually, I think about it all the time. I love to talk preaching. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you on to have a, a, a preaching podcast then too right. sometime. Well, Jessica, I often, and we, I end the podcast a lot of times by asking the same question, and that is uh, related to the title, more to the story. Like my idea is like, this is a theological meaning that there's more to the story than just being saved and having our sins forgiven. There's sanctification. There's a process that we have to become more like Jesus and to be able to experience life out of the chaos. But also I'm curious, like when there's more to the story in somebody's life. So is there more to the story of Jessica that most people don't know? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a funny, (laughs) there's always layers to people, right? So yeah, I, um, you know, we didn't talk about any of this, but I, um, have a family, have my husband, Jim is a, he's a software developer, has an app in the app store called um, my daily office. That's okay. about prayer. Um, and so he's in ministry of technology developing that. And then I have a 12 year old and a nine year old who are my joy. So what we're really into right now, they're just like riding their bikes around this town, like crazy. We're in the phase of Hey, um, I'm going to ride up to so-and-so's house. We, you, you know, Wilmore, Kentucky well, but we live in a neighborhood that's so close. We can just like stick our head out the door and yell and they can, somebody will hear us and send them home. <laughs> but we're just really loving living in the community right now, spending time. I think, especially coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, this t- like, wow, we can, we're back to community gatherings, friendships, mm. And I am thinking all the time about like my kids being formed by the community around them. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, that's not like skydiving, but, um, <laughs> but that's my world, honestly. And yeah. it's a beautiful world. And the, you know, the, the book itself, the chaos book is dedicated to my kids because okay. they are both a source of chaos in my life. Absolutely. And also they are the good things running wild. So, um, you know, we have this life of like, beautiful chaos with a 12 year old and a nine year old. And I absolutely get to, to preach and write and travel and speak, but a lot of my heart is coming home to them. Yeah. Now, do you ride bikes with them? I do. Okay. You got Mm -hmm. your husband's name is Jim. Yes. So he, I, I had the daily office. So this uses like the book of common prayer. Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah. It's the morning and evening prayer form, but he's, he's tweaked it in a way that you can, keep track of prayer requests. You can, uh, read the scriptures for the day. There's an automatic link to those, that kind of thing. So, um, and he, you know, he loves to use technology to help people engage in prayer and, and Bible study. Awesome. Well, we'll try to include a link to that. If you can send it to me, sure. we can put in the show notes. We'd love for people to get, get in on that. And yeah, there's um, my kids are now 15, 13, 11. So similar, uh, Ooh. category and, the, we have a trail right by our house. And so they, oh, um, they, they get out on there and I, I'm just praying that everything goes well when they're on that trail as they're riding around, but yeah. it's, they're, they're running wild. Yes. I love it. It's yes. a, it's a great phase. It's it a great is. phase of being with them. It's a beautiful phase. 
Jessica, thank you so much for your time. It means a lot to me that you've been able to come on here. And I just encourage folks to, to go find her book, share a link to this podcast to get people interested in it. And really, let's just try to find opportunities that the Holy Spirit uses to bring us out of chaos and into the people he's calling us to be. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you.